Russell fans and dino lovers, welcome to the Paleo Podcast, brought to you by the Cranbrook Institute of Science and Podcast Nation. Here are your hosts, Tim and Dr. Andrew. Fellow science enthusiasts, welcome back to the Cranbrook Paleo Podcast. I'm Andrew. And I'm Tim. We have a very special guest. His name is Dr. Steve Brusati. He is one of the leading paleontologists, I'd say, in the world. Yep. And uh, you might be familiar with his work through uh, some particularly famous dinosaurs like Chongosaurus, or perhaps you've seen his work in movies like Jurassic World Dominion. Oh, I think I've heard of that one. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I might have seen a little bit of Mm -hmm. it. And uh, there's also some books such as The Rise and Fall of Dinosaurs or The Rise and Reign of Mammals. Dr. Brasati is joining us from Scotland, where he carries out research in vertebrate paleontology as a faculty member at the University of Edinburgh. In addition to his research, Dr. Brasati is also an acclaimed author and scientific consultant for several dinosaur-relevant films and documentaries, most recently including a movie you may have heard of called Jurassic World Dominion. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you here. My pleasure. I always love talking dinosaurs and talking books and talking movies. Uh, and uh, I'm uh, excited, as always, to chat with you guys. Awesome. Yeah, it, it's going to be great. Uh, so one thing I got to say is whenever I do research on, on dinosaurs or I'm reading up on a dinosaur, it never seems to take too long until your name pops up as part of the, the group that, that studied that dinosaur. Yeah, and it seems like you've discovered more than a dozen new species of vertebrate fossils. Uh, what can you tell us about your discoveries? I have a pretty unusual name, so it probably stands out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably why you see it all the time. There's not too many Brusatis that study dinosaurs. But no, I've been very uh, fortunate in the 20 or so years since I've been studying dinosaurs, you know, starting as an undergraduate and continuing through as a PhD student and then becoming a a professor and so on. Throughout all that time, I've worked with a lot of amazing people all over the world, and and I've gotten these opportunities to go on digs and to collect new fossils and then also to work with people who have found fossils or with museums that have fossils that are in their collections. So, you know, that's resulted in quite a few new dinosaur species that I've been able to name. And of course, that work is always collaborative. We never discover or dig up or name a dinosaur just by ourselves. That is really rare. Could you imagine a single person digging up an entire dinosaur skeleton? <laughs> right, right. So, you know, I always just want to point out when it comes to new things I've discovered or named is always, uh, you know, as part of a team. And uh, there have been some really cool ones I've been involved in, and I feel very lucky uh, to work in places like China, where um, I have uh, helped out uh, some of my, my friends in China describe new dinosaurs like this one called Chongosaurus, which we named a mm-hmm. few years ago. It's a, a cousin of T-Rex. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a little bit smaller, but it has a really long snout. And because Chongosaurus is kind of a hard word to say and to spell, I have to always remember how to, how to spell it properly. <laughs> uh, we decided it needed a nickname. And because it's a, a cousin of T-Rex and it, because it has that long nose, we called it Pinocchio Rex as a nickname. So that's a neat one I've been able to help out with. And, and it was actually found by construction workers, by the way, digging the foundation for a new building. And it made its way to a colleague of mine uh, who was a, a leading dinosaur hunter in China. So that's one example. I've worked a lot in Romania uh, on dinosaurs there. And uh, a little over a decade ago, a friend of mine there was out with his kids looking for fossils. And he found the skeleton of this little raptor dinosaur. So he 
invited me and uh, and some others to study it, and we called that one Balor Bandak. That's a Romanian word, uh, two Romanian words that that means stocky dragon. Uh, mm. And those are just a few examples, but just really to reiterate the point that. It's a whole lot of fun to work with interesting people all over the world on new dinosaurs. When we have something new, we're the first people that have ever seen it. You know, these things are millions and millions and millions of years old until we study it and figure out what it is and give it a name. It essentially doesn't exist. Right, so yeah, it's yeah. a really fun process. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned at the, you know, construction workers being the ones to tell you about these discoveries. We have that in Michigan here as well. Every now and then at the museum, we get a new call about digging a foundation for a building and, you know, oh, look, there's a mastodon. It's that's how we get a lot of our, our, yeah, our digs going. I know going. that well because, um, you know, I'm, I'm here in Scotland and I've, I've been living here for about a decade. I'm a professor at the University of Edinburgh, but uh, you can surely tell from my accent, I don't come from here. My, <laughs> I, the way I, I talk is quite similar to probably a lot of uh, you guys listening, I'm from not too far away. I'm from from Northern Illinois. And so that was a common thing when I was growing up too. You'd see in the newspaper that uh, a farmer was out plowing the field or that somebody was was uh, digging out a basement and they found a mammoth or uh, yep. a mascot or a giant ground sloth or one of these ice age giant mammals that, that lived all across America not too long ago. And there's just such incredible magic about that. And I think what is particularly inspiring is that you don't need a PhD. You don't need to be a professor to find fossils. It's such a, a democratic science that's open to everybody. Yep, absolutely. So going back to your the naming system that you mentioned, I saw that you know they were at least slightly relevant. So there's at least some maybe formal or informal rules that go into a name. Like you can't just decide to name something the Brusatosaurus, for instance. <laughs> Yes, it would be the height of arrogance to name <laughs> a new fossil you find after yourself. That's not to say that you know, some people wouldn't want to do that. Uh, but uh, there there are formal rules that um, that govern how you name uh, a fossil that you find or that somebody else finds. If, if there's something new, if it's a type of fossil that's that's never been recognized before, you can give it a name. And the process usually works like this. Um, you find something, you're out digging, and you come up with something, or you go into a museum, you open the drawer, you see something there you've never seen before. It piques your interest. It gets you thinking, could this be something new? And in order to determine that, you have to do a lot of comparisons. You have to look very closely at the bones. You have to compare them to the bones of other dinosaurs. You have to, to measure them and, and compare the measurements. And you have to see can you assign those fossils to any existing dinosaur species? And if you can't, if there are, if there's something new about your fossil, something different, something unique, then that is a sign that it's a new species. And in that case, you can name it. And really, uh, you have the, the the choice of what you want to call it. You just have to write up a formal scientific. Uh, publication on it, basically an article that you write and you publish in a, a scientific journal or a scientific magazine. And you describe the fossil, you illustrate it, you photograph it, you note what's new and different about it, and then you can name it basically whatever you want. And then that goes through a peer review process. Other scientists look at that, they assess it, they double check your work. And then once it's published, that new name becomes official. 
There are a few rules about the kind of names you can can give. You cannot name something after yourself, uh, yep. uh, but you don't have to call it something in ancient Greek or Latin or something like that. A lot of, of formal scientific names are based on Greek or Latin, but it's not a rule. You can name things really in any language. So a lot of what we've been doing recently, like with that Romanian dinosaur, Balor Bandak, that I mentioned, um, we, we use words that mean something that are relevant to that fossil. In this case, Romanian words uh, that describe that particular animal. So a lot of times now when we find new fossils, we take inspiration from folklore. Uh, we take inspiration from the local environment, from the local people, uh, or we might choose to commemorate uh, a mentor or a friend or, or a scientist or somebody um, when we name that fossil. So basically what it comes down to is if you find something new, if you can demonstrate that it is new, you can call it whatever you want within reason. You got to publish <laughs> that name. Uh, and, and that means that we can be very, very, very creative, which is a whole lot of fun when you have that opportunity to name something new. It's like naming a new child. So it's something <laughs> that we absolutely love. So you had a, a clearly a very busy uh, career. Uh, is there a particular discovery or, or maybe some research that you're especially proud of or, or one that really holds a special place in your in your heart there? There's one that stands out, and it's a, a discovery that we made here in Scotland in 2015. And it's special for a couple of reasons. First of all, this was a few years after I moved to Scotland. And after I moved here, of course, I, I tried to become part of the community here. Uh, you know, it's, it's a new country, a new culture, both personally, but also professionally you know, in the university and in the paleontology community. So I started to do field work here. I started to go out and look for fossils here. I brought my students out and my colleagues out. And we went out to the Isle of Skye, which is this beautiful island off the west coast of Scotland, off in the Atlantic Ocean. And it is absolutely gorgeous. It, it, it's used uh, as the, the backdrop to a lot of Hollywood movies now. There's always filmmakers out there that are filming because there's very dramatic mountains and cliffs uh, and and the, the landscape is enchanting. It's like something out of a, a, a fantasy novel. <laughs> so it's a beautiful place to work, but it's cold, it's windy, it's wet. Most of the fossils, you find them along the coastline, so you can only work when the tide is low and oh, the wow. water is far off. So it's um, it's a challenging place to work, but again, a very enchanting place. And, and, and it became very special to me as I was becoming Scottish. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right. and so in 2015, we were out there and one of my colleagues, Tom Challens and I, we, we went out to a site, uh, uh, a geologist had found a tiny little jawbone there. We hope maybe we'll find a complete skeleton of something but we didn't find any bones and it was really discouraging. We were there for hours and hours on our hands and knees, just scrutinizing the rock along the coastline. And then we decided to, to, to give up for the day. We were hungry, it was getting late and we started to walk back to our vehicles and we started to notice these tidal pools, these um, basically holes in the rock where there was seaweed growing in there and barnacles and you know hermit crabs and these kind of things. And that's normal along the coastline. But what really stood out to us was, wait a minute, all of these tide pools, they kind of are the same size and shape. They're all about the size of a car tire. And they seem to, to be forming a pattern. There's a bit of like a left-right, left-right zigzagging pattern. 
And then when we look closer, we can see they weren't really circular, but they had bits sticking out that looked a lot like fingers and toes. So it dawned <laughs> on us that we had found dinosaur footprints. And these were huge dinosaur footprints wow. left by the only animal that's ever lived that was so big that it, its hands and feet left a hole the size of a car tire anytime wow. it touched the ground. And these were the long-necked dinosaurs, the brontosaurus, brachiosaurus types of dinosaurs. And these particular tracks, they had never been found in Scotland before. We had over 100 of them at this site. We could see trackways. We could get a sense of these dinosaurs moving, walking, wow. interacting with each other, living their lives 170 million years ago. So it remains the, the largest dinosaur uh, site in Scotland, something we're very, very proud of. And we continue to go to work on the Isle of Skye. And I continue to take my students out there. And although that discovery was made by Tom and me, most of the good discoveries on Sky are actually made by our students, including this beautiful skeleton of a pterodactyl that we found a few years ago. Wow. That's incredible. And, you know, it's a good point, too. I feel like whenever you see these discoveries, you know, it's a it's a big skull or a footprint or something just sitting there. But fossils are, you know, you got to look for them oftentimes. They're not really well preserved or, or necessarily super obvious right when you first stumble upon them, right? Absolutely. If fossils were easy to, to find, people would be finding them all the time. So it does take a little bit of experience and a little bit of skill. And really the experience is probably more important because what you look for is anything that looks out of place inside the rocks. Right. So you, have, you find fossils inside of rocks. You know, fossils are bones and teeth and footprints and other things that have been petrified over time, basically turned into rocks. And so they're going to be found inside of other rocks. And and so all, all you can do is look. There's no fancy tools. There's no radar or sonar or anything that we shoot into the rocks. We just walk around and we look, and we look for anything that has maybe a different color, a different texture, something that has a shape that looks unique, that looks symmetrical, that looks like it's not just a bunch of random minerals. And then if we see something like that, we get down, we look further, we can get out our tools, we can dig further into the rock. So you need to get that experience. You need to get your eyes tuned in. And some people are genuinely more skilled at it than others because they have better eyesight or better patience or whatever. But, but the important thing is that when you get that experience, if you put in the time, anybody can find fossils. You know, you don't need the fancy degree to do it. And and it's, that is a beautiful thing. You can be an amateur paleontologist. You can be a, a hobbyist paleontologist. You can do a little bit of paleontology on the weekends. You know, good luck doing that with many other sciences. I don't know any right, right. amateur nuclear physicists. Right. You know, for <laughs> so it's a, it's a great thing. Yeah. So uh, I recently uh, rewatched Jurassic World Dominion uh, for like the sixth time uh, last weekend. And uh, I noticed <laughs> something. Thank you for that. I appreciate yeah. I noticed something on my, uh, my final rewatch there. Uh, it, during the, the moment where the character Ian Malcolm is, is giving a speech to, uh, to all the characters, he is in a uh, room called the Brusati Lecture Room. And uh, that is because you were the scientific consultant for the movie, right? That's right. You got good eyes. You're yeah, a great wow. fossil collector. Yeah, I, <laughs> I screenshotted it and sent it to Angie. Yeah, like, yeah. hey, look. <laughs> yeah, and again, it's that unique name. There's no other Brusatis yeah, out there doing paleontology. So that is me. <laughs> uh, and that was a little uh, tongue-in-cheek, little funny, little quirky thing 
that uh, the production designer on the film, basically the guy who's in charge of all the visual aspects of the film, all the art and, and all the characters and so on, is a guy named Kevin Jenkins. Uh, and he put that into the film. He snuck it in there just to be funny. It's what they call <laughs> in the movie business an Easter egg. Right, and, you yeah. know, they, they hide a lot of these things in there because these people, they're so artistic, they're so creative, and they're a lot of fun. So, so I worked with, you know, Kev, pretty closely as he and his team were designing the new dinosaurs in the film. Uh, and so that's what my role was. I was the paleontology consultant on the film and I was there to represent the science. You know, I didn't, I didn't write the script. I didn't come mm -hmm. up with the story. I didn't even choose which dinosaurs were in the film, but I was just there to give advice and give information on the real dinosaurs. So for instance, there's a new dinosaur in the film called Pyroraptor. It's in a Jurassic film for the first time, and it's mm -hmm. covered in feathers, and it has wings, and it's the first real good look at a feathered dinosaur in the whole Jurassic series. It was my job to make sure that the filmmakers uh, had all the information they needed to make that dinosaur as engaging and accurate and realistic as possible. So I had lots of phone calls, lots of emails, lots of chats, you know, just talking <laughs> with the creative geniuses behind the film, making sure that they knew all they needed to know about the real dinosaur. You mentioned you mentioned the pyroraptor and uh, that animal behaves pretty uniquely in the movie, you know, diving into the water and then swimming around a little bit. Did you have any any part in perhaps like the behaviors of the dinosaurs in the movies or or how they looked? Uh, what were some of the influences uh, you helped uh, put in there? I had more influence on how the dinosaurs looked than how they behaved. I did give some feedback to the filmmakers. They would ask me if certain behaviors were possible for these dinosaurs, if I thought mm. they may have moved or hunted in a certain way. But m more of what I did was uh, I gave a lot of um, advice on the appearances of the dinosaurs as the filmmakers and the artists were designing them. And so they would send me a lot of drafts, you know, as they were designing these things. They'd use computer programs to digitally design the, the dinosaurs, and they would send me uh, copies of these as they were building them, just to make sure that the dinosaurs were looking right. And they would ask me, "Is you know, does this look right? Or do you notice anything that's off about it? How do you think of, of, about its posture? Is it standing in the right way? Are the arms and legs held in the right mm -hmm. way? Uh, is the head the right size in relation to the body? You know, are the teeth correct? These kind of things. So so it's more of the physical appearances that, that I helped with. Now, that's not to say that every dinosaur in the film is a perfect, accurate representation of what that dinosaur would have looked like in life, because a lot of times we don't even have enough fossils to tell. The real pyroraptor is only known from a few bones. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we don't really even have a good idea of what it looked like. But even if we did, of course, this is a movie. It's a, a summer blockbuster movie. It's a monster movie. It has to be scary. It has to be engaging. The dinosaurs have to have character and personality. And so the science, the accuracy is part of that. But it's not the whole story of making a movie like this. We talked about um, how dinosaur names can kind of be a little tricky to pronounce sometimes. And uh, this particular dinosaur in Dominion, the they call it the Giganotosaurus in the movie. However, I noticed in the special features, uh, you pronounced it the Giganotosaurus. Is uh, that the proper pronunciation or did they pull a Dilophosaurus, Dilophosaurus <laughs> thing? And <laughs> This is a really funny story. I was at home 
because this was, you know, during the time where we were hybrid working in the pandemic. In fact, I'm still hybrid working, as many of us <laughs> right. are. But um, I was at home. I was writing. Um, uh, part of my, my, I have a new book out on mammals, a mammal evolution. I was writing some of this book, and uh, I, I kind of, I didn't have my email up, you know, nothing like that. I was trying to not be distracted. I needed to get this writing done, and I got a phone call, and and I looked on the phone and and said Colin Trevorrow on the phone. Well, Colin's the director of <laughs> Jurassic World. And so I said, okay, I got to take this call. And so I answered it and Colin, he said, hey, hey, Steve. He said, I'm glad I got you. I've been sending you emails, but but you're not looking at your emails. I said, oh, sorry, I'm writing the book. He said, well, we need to talk now because I'm on the set. We're just about to film this scene. And one of the actors, Mamadou Afi, is about to pronounce the name of this dinosaur. <laughs> and however he says it now, that's how we're going to have to say it for the whole rest of the film. So we want to get it right. And he said, it's the big meat eater. How do you say it? And I said, oh, Colin, I said, you're going to hate me for, for saying this. You're going to just you're going to think of me as just that guy. <laughs> well, actually, guy. But I said there are actually two ways to say it. Uh, the paleontologists oftentimes say it one way or the other, either Giganotosaurus or Giganotosaurus. Mm. There's no right or wrong way. It's a dinosaur from Argentina. It was discovered by Spanish speakers. You know, when they say it, they put on, you know, a certain pronunciation because of their accents, uh, but other people pronounce it differently. So I said, take take your pick, Giganotosaurus or Giganotosaurus. Either one is fine. Whichever one sounds better, sounds scarier, whatever you need, said, all right, we'll do Giganotosaurus. Okay, there <laughs> That's you go. Why it's Giganotosaurus. Yeah. So you mentioned a book that you recently wrote. It's my understanding you've written several books on dinosaurs and the history of life on Earth. So what can you tell us about your works and where can listeners find your books if they're interested too? I love writing. Uh, it, it's one of my favorite things to do. And I love writing for people broadly. You know, I, I, I the writing I like the least is academic writing, yep. the writing that only five other scientists. Oh, right. So, you know, I write these academic papers and I've written textbooks and other things. But what I really like are writing books for kids and, and writing books for for a general audience of, of, of adults. And so, you know, I've written a few books recently that are popular science books for adults. And, and there was one a few years ago called The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, which tells the story of, of dinosaurs, where they came from, how they became so big and dominant, how some of them evolved feathers and wings and became birds, how the rest of them became extinct. And I weave in stories of my own discoveries and the discoveries of my colleagues and the history of science and the methods of, you know, the techniques we use, how we know what we know, how we find fossils. And so I wrote that book a few years ago. I followed it up uh, this year, just a few months ago, with another one called The Rise and Reign of the Mammals. And so that tells the 325 million year story of our family, the mammals, you know, where we as humans come from and not just us, but dogs and cats and bears and elephants and bats and whales and kangaroos and monkeys and all the other thousands of Very animals cool. around us. Um, so those books are, are you know, for a, a, just a general adult, adult audience. I, when I was writing them, what I really kept was trying to keep in mind were the kind of books I liked to read when I was in high school, when I was becoming interested in fossils. Uh, and I wanted to make books that were accessible to anybody, that you don't need a, an advanced degree to read them, that aren't so full of jargon and terminology, but that tell stories. But I also love writing books for kids. And I have a uh, one that came out about a year ago called The Age of Dinosaurs. And that's a younger reader's version of The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. So it tells that same story of the whole evolutionary arc of dinosaurs and how we study dinosaurs and some of the discoveries I've made and my colleagues have made. But it's written for a younger audience. So I think those are books that um, some of you listening might be interested in and, and you can 
find them, of course, on, on any of the mega online book uh, sellers or at your local independent bookshop. And please do support your local bookshops if you're able to. Absolutely. And having read them, I, I do recommend them. Absolutely. Right. Well, Steve, it's been absolutely great to have you with us today. We will definitely stay tuned to see what new and exciting dinosaur discoveries you make as time go on. But thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And uh, again, very happy to talk dinosaurs with, with you guys and everybody listening out there. Um, if you want to study paleontology, look us up at the University of Edinburgh. we got a great program here, so maybe we'll dig dinosaurs together one day. Yeah, yeah perfect. <laughs> Thanks, guys. The Paleo Podcast is produced by the Cranbrook Institute of Science and Podcast Nation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>